HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, Today we're going to be talking about uh, my favorite topic, antibiotics in the food system. And I have a really special guest on the line uh, today. Dr. Scott Hurd is our guest. He spent 15 years of his career in governmental service working in three different branches of the USDA. He served in the Center for Animal Health Monitoring Systems Center for Epidemiology and Animal Health and the National Animal Disease Center from 1989 to 2004. And then continuing his government service, he was also appointed to Deputy Acting uh, Undersecretary for Food Safety in 2008. And there he served as the country's highest ranking food safety veterinarian and policy advisor to the Secretary of Agriculture. In 2004, Dr. Hurd became an associate professor at Iowa State University Department of Veterinary Diagnostic and Production Animal Medicine, where he remains today. He is the former director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center and the current director of the Food Risk Modeling and sorry, modeling and policy lab at Iowa State. So, you guys, we are talking to the horse's mouth here. This is the man. Welcome to the program, Doctor Hurd. Thank you so so much for joining me today. Thank you, Katie. That's fabulous. You did a great job with that introduction. Most people can't handle that. <laughs> <laughs> I practiced. <laughs> Um, Dr. Hurd, you and I and Emily Meredith, who's been a guest on this program several times, uh, recently collaborated on a sort of blogging round robin for the Huffington Post. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about that that I, I sort of wanted to follow up in the post, but didn't feel that it was fair to do so. But in the beginning of this interview, I want to ask you, where do you feel that consumers are most misinformed as regards to the use of antibiotics in livestock? Like, where do you think the, the conversation is breaking down in the worst way? Well, I think that the first point is when people hear antibiotics and food, 
they immediately have a negative reaction, assuming that that means there's antibiotics in their meat. Yes, I agree. That is a tremendous misinterpretation. Right. So, so they, And they don't understand the first principle that that's not supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Animals, if they're getting antibiotics, there's a withdrawal period by which they're supposed to stop getting the antibiotics before they actually go to market. And FSIS, that's the USDA Inspection Service, carefully tests the meat products and if you have a positive residue in the meat, you're going to get a visit from Uncle Sam, and you probably are going to do it again. Right. <clears throat> so that's a big misconception. The concern that we're really dealing with is the question of resistance, which is not the same as the residue in the meat, of course. the one I just described. Right. Right. Absolutely. So in the blog post that we wrote together, um, I cited various reports and studies, which um, you can't, you, <laughs> this really totally cracked me up was you were, you said to Emily, what, what is this? Like the Pew Research Center? <laughs> Concerned scientists <laughs> yeah. in the public interest? What's up? She's spouting the rhetoric. Um, but I'm spouting the rhetoric that everybody is reading and most people are believing, including me. Um, and in the blog post, um, I cited all these various, not just uh, concerned scientists in the public interest, et cetera, but also um, sources of information that are theoretically, um, shall we say, impartial. And that would include Consumers Union, which is a completely impartial entity that uh, does not accept money from anywhere, etc. And then, of course, the National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring Systems, which I think even, you know, the industry acknowledges is pretty impartial as well. Um, and they, those, those entities uh, have also expressed tremendous concerns about the overuse of antibiotics in the food system, which have led to um, multi-drug resistant microbes. And I was wondering, why do you think that they make those reports if they're not accurate? Well, you're absolutely, you, you said a key word that we have to focus on, which is the word overuse. Right. If there's overuse on the farm, then it's wrong. Um, if there's use for cases where the animals don't need it and for a situation where there actually is a public health risk, then they shouldn't do that. You mentioned my job as a deputy undersecretary was the chief public health veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And veterinarians take an oath to protect the public health as well as to prevent and relieve animal suffering. Right. So there's this challenge, and we really do need to make a distinction, and I appreciate that you do that. The question of overuse is not okay. We don't want it, <clears throat> we being the, the farm veterinary community. Uh-huh. So <clears throat> that's part of the reason, and I continually ask myself this question, why does it seem like I disagree with groups like Consumer Union and whatnot? And the reason is that it's, it's just not one big giant issue that can easily be addressed by saying, stop using all antibiotics on the farm. You see, we have to parse it apart and look at specifically what are the uses that are exceeding um, normal and customary, in other words, where we don't need it. What are the uses where there's actually a risk to humans and you see, that question varies depending on which antibiotic we're talking about of or course. which bacteria we're talking about. But so Dr. FDA Hurd, let me... has taken that 
surgical approach, if you will, mm-hmm. looking at specific antibiotics, specific bacteria, and so forth. That's right. Actually, you mentioned that in the blog, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But I want to point out to you for uh, just a moment that um, yeah, you know, the, a lot of antibiotic use in the past 30, 35 years has been what they call off-label or extra-label use, where it's not monitored by a vet. And that means that uh, farmers have been free to use whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it, in whatever quantities they wanted, and that it's been added to that antibiotics have been routinely added to the feed of animals for either to theoretically, um, well, for growth promotants, which we're going to talk about in a second, but also to just kind of retard the spread or keep uh, the the, uh, incidence of disease at a minimum. And so those are the concerns, I think, those are the two uses that I think are the ones that have been most likely to contribute to um, antibiotic-resistant microbe you know, evolution. And those are the ones where I, I think most people are concerned about how, how will that, that kind of usage be stopped? How will it be enforced? How will it be monitored? Well, that's important to understand that there's a difference. You said two different things. Yes. One is that farmers could use all the antibiotics they want and so forth and so on. And that's, at one time that may have been true, but now feed antibiotics are more carefully regulated than even human antibiotics. There's no such thing as extra-label antibiotic use in the feed. Uh FDA has that very clearly and carefully regulated, except for some mom-and-pop guy who might go down to the store and buy some and dump it in his feed. Mm -hmm. The main people using antibiotics in production, it's very well regulated. Now, that moves to the question of, well, why do they do that? Why do they put it in the feed, or why do they put it in the water? Right. And in some cases... Only about 13% of all the antibiotics are used in this case. In some cases, it's because, for whatever reasons, the animals grow better. And growth is actually a good measure of health in animals because you sure. can't really ask them, Hi, guys, how are you feeling today? Um, <laughs> growth is one way of measuring that. It's kind of like, and we don't totally understand why it works. It maybe is like taking yogurt or probiotics. It makes the gut system better. Well, they, it, then, it makes them only, convert said, food to muscle of faster. The, whole product. Uh-huh. the rest then would be for preventing disease and for treating disease. Right, right. Well, I don't think anyone, I don't think there's a consumer, uh, you know, unless you're really, you know, unless you're an organic meat consumer and you feel very strongly about this, I don't think anybody's going to argue with the idea that if an animal is sick and suffering, it must be, you know, isolated and treated. I, you know, I, I think everybody accepts that that's part of animal husbandry and that's the appropriate and, and uh, humane response to animal suffering is to make sure that, that you stop it as soon as possible. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how people are able to um well actually let me let me read a little something that you just said in this blog thing that vets and farmers are concerned about antibiotic use and risk and are working on their part of the problem most of the meat groups have strict guidelines about ju- drug use as part of their auditable quality assurance programs well now i remember um going to a, a convention about 2 years ago maybe 3 at this point um where they the fdi was just phasing in these voluntary guidelines um speaking to the issues of of uh feed of reg- Regulating the use of antibiotics in feed, and then and then there was really no um, 
you know, there was just no sort of clear parameter. And I think that you mentioned in the in the blog that there is a new FDA regulation 309. Is that what it is? 209. 209, excuse me. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that specifically? Well, to, guidance to kind of... 209 is where FDA recently, I think it was about a year ago, came mm-hmm. out and they essentially said, we do not think that growth promotion use of antibiotics is prudent or judicious. Mm-hmm. So they're telling the industry, cut it out. Now, a lot of people complain. They say it's voluntary. It's not going to do any good. But actually, voluntary um, regulations can be faster and more effective than trying to force people to do it. Well, I know that's and, the argument. And I know yeah. for exact fact the major pharmaceutical companies no longer sell or promote their products in, for growth-promoting uses. Mm-hmm. So the amount going for this growth promotion, purely economic, so we can make a buck sort of deal, that is is going away. And right. that's, you know, that's probably, that's fine. Yeah, I think it's like kind of essential, actually. <laughs> yeah, but the other, <laughs> the other part that people want to throw away too quickly when they talk about banning antibiotic use, when they talk about doing it the way they do in Europe, what we end up losing are vital preventive measures. Um, and, for example, in Denmark, where they banned growth-promoting and preventive antibiotics, the amount of uh, antibiotic used just for treatment purposes, that amount doubled after the ban. Yeah, but eventually that, that, that bottomed out, too, because I, I read that study. It topped out. It's still in other words, twice what it was before the ban. I don't, I'm not, well, okay, I'm going to bow to you because I know you're the, you, you are the man, and I, I certainly don't want to undermine the credibility of my incredibly distinguished guest because um, <laughs> God knows you've been in the business a lot longer. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not a vet, much as I would have liked to have been one. Um, but one of the, the other things that you said that, that concerned or um, confused me, I guess, is you said every bug drug, that is bacteria-antibiotic combination, is unique, and you were just referencing that a few minutes ago, and broad generalizations and management of entire drug classes will not be effective. But isn't it true that drugs will, I mean, that uh, that antibiotic-resistant microbes will jump a class or jump from, like, say you're you're giving your, your animals tetracycline, but doesn't that also make all of the other cyclins, um, you know, part of that antimicrobial-resistant um, uh, again, the answer to that evolution. question depends on the bacteria. For I some see. bacteria, it's true that some resistance comes along in the form of what they call a plasmid or a yes. cassette. But for other bacteria, that's not true, in which case mm-hmm. it's only the children of the grandchildren that are passed down that have this resistance. In other words, they don't cross-fertilize their resistance. Mm. So that's why, again, the question has to be addressed for each specific antibiotic and bacteria, mm-hmm. and the FDA has done that. For example, they uh, restricted the what they call extra-label use of cephalosporins because right. of a specific bug drug issue. They restricted the use of fluoroquinolones for treating poultry disease. It wasn't even growth-promoting, mm-hmm. but that was a specific um, bacteria, salmonella, and antibiotic fluoroquinolone. They were seeing resistance that was disconcerting. So these specific management programs are much more effective, uh, I believe, than the the broad throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because bottom line, what they're left with on the farm right now are ancient antibiotics. They've been around for 50, 60 years. Nobody's making any new ones. And I just had a meeting with the Turkey, uh, Iowa Turkey Federation a couple weeks ago, and they said, help us. Uh We have nothing left to use to prevent disease in these animals. So, you know, well, gee whiz, 
<laughs> that's yeah. pretty alarming, Doc. I mean, because it, it basically it's says very that, alarming. that and they it's alarming, like I said, when we go to the farm yeah. and pigs are falling over dead and you don't have anything to use on them. Right. And, and, and the thing is, is, it sort of reminds me uh, in a funny way of the New England fishing industry, um, which basically, you know, fished out their stocks. I'm oversimplifying here. But um, and then they're like, oh, my God, what do we do now? You know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> you know, these guys have used so many drugs on farm that they now have nothing left to um, to resist. Uh, the well, no, actually, that- it's not because of that. It's because there's no new drugs because they keep the regulations keep taking the drugs away. It's not oh. really resistance, but the regulations are taking the drugs away and the companies aren't making new drugs. Mm-hmm. So that's really where the problem is. Hmm. And okay. what is your what is your take on um, pharmaceutical companies like why are they not developing new drugs? Is it not um, is it not it's economically too viable? Too risky. No, it's too risky. I was at a meeting oh my gosh, now when was it 2006 or 2008 there was a new product that they were requesting be approved. Everybody thought the product looked Fine, except when it came to the question of resistance, mm-hmm. you know, the issue we're talking about. Right. And no one, everyone was concerned that it was too close to the human drugs, therefore we shouldn't allow it. Right. So that was actually for treatment. That was not for growth promoting. So there was a new drug that could have been useful on the farm, but people wouldn't, um, or the committee wouldn't approve it. Right. So new companies aren't willing to invest. It takes 10 years to develop a new product and get it approved. Mm. So that's the, that's the downside that we're having. Well, I would think that the, uh, the animal livestock industry would be well served to, um, to really push forward uh, with uh, you know, funding and, and uh, grants for research and stuff. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me to let this just halt um, because but it's, it's risky. it's a regulatory framework. It's, people, it's misconceptions <laughs> like you started with when we started talking. <laughs> misconceptions that people have about antibiotic use, people just are convinced that farmers are pouring it in the feed in order to make a buck. And so the companies say, we better go, you know, spend our research dollars on something else. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real problem. The regulatory framework is, um, and it's just, it's a hard, hard concept for people to understand. I totally get that. Um, It is complicated because I think it is complicated partly by the fact that people think that antibiotics in their food means that they're literally in the food. They don't see that it's actually part of a whole process of microbes evolving to resist different things. And they do it as a result of not just – I was reading that paper that you had on your um, website actually from the – let's see. Where was it? The comprehensive – Damn, I wrote it down here, too. But it's the Comprehensive <clears throat> Food Safety and Food Science Report, and you put up a new report from them about antibiotics in food, which is actually right. quite damning, um, <clears throat> from my point of view, anyway. Um, <clears throat> because it did discuss the emergence of all these new strains of Salmonella, of Campylobacter, of E. coli, of XPEC E. coli, for instance, that's causing all these UTIs in women that can't be treated and that are probably largely due to livestock use initially because they're basically, according to what I've read, getting it from handling um, raw chicken. Is that right? By the way, have you heard about that? Yes, have you read anything I about that? about that. And Friday I'm working on a grant proposal to address that question to see whether it's really feasible. Really what you talked about is the hypothesis 
and hypotheses are good for generating real research, but it mm-hmm. still is a hypothesis mm-hmm. that there's a connection from the farm to the urinary tract. Yes, I, I think that's true. I mean, I, I will certainly grant you that. But uh, on the other hand, it was a hypothesis that smoking caused cancer. So, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, there sure, are hypotheses and, and hypotheses. Um, like I said, I'm working on a grant to... Uh, to test that. Yes, well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that. I, I really hope you get it. Um, You'd be happy to help fund it, too, right? Yes, I, I certainly <laughs> would. Scott, with all of my millions of dollars, absolutely do. Listen, if I could generate money for you to fund that kind of research, I'd be very happy to. But the name of the of the organization that um, whose report I was just reading that I saw on your, your blog space or website or whatever is called the Comprehensive Reviews of Food Science and Food Safety. And um, that was a very interesting report. I didn't get to go all the way through it, unfortunately, and read it with the attention that I wanted to, but can you just give a thumbnail of what they were saying there? Because I know you can do a better job of summing it up than I can. Well, as you pointed out, they essentially dissect the issue as as needs to be done, looking Mm -hmm. at the different bacteria and the different issues, and with the understanding that we know that bacteria can develop resistance in the presence of antibiotics. They know that we need to be careful on which antibiotics we use, where and when, and um, but bottom line, there's just no simple answer. Unfortunately, right. <clears throat> society wants a real simple answer, and they want their politician to push the button and write a law and make it all the problem all go away. Well, do you, are you saying you don't agree with PAMTA with Louise Slaughter's? Um, you Absolutely, know, frequently I do not introduced... agree with Louise Slaughter's. Really, and even FDA has said that it's bad legislation. And what are the aspects? We're going to have to take a quick break. Actually, let's take, Dedrick, we're going to take a quick break. Stay tuned. Dr. Hurd, uh, my wonderful guest, and thank you so much for joining me, is going to stay on the line with me. We'll be right back to talk about uh, the prevention of, or no, the protecting, um, anyway, we'll figure it out. But we're going to talk about that legislation. (laughs) Right, Doc? Okay, we'll be right back. Hang on. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com And we are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights with Katie Kiefer. I'm your host. And on the line with me is the excellent Dr. Scott Hurd, who is helping us parse out the issues surrounding um, antibiotics in the food chain, which is, uh, as almost anything is going to be that is at all large or complex, uh, a lot more complicated than we'd like to think and not, not as easy to fix as um, I think many people would like to, sh- to to believe in. And so we were talking just before the break about the preservation of Antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act, a piece of legislation that has been introduced uh, six or eight times over the last equally probably that many years by Congresswoman Louise Slaughter from upstate New York, who's the only microbiologist in Congress. And um, Dr. Hurd, you were about to explain why you feel that that piece of legislation is not a good piece or why FDA doesn't like it. I'm sorry, ready? Yeah, go ahead. My understanding from that bill is that it would essentially remove the approvals for all antibiotic use in livestock, and then the companies would have to go back and demonstrate for each bug-drug combination Mm -hmm. that the risk was minimal. The problem with that is, to me, as I said, it's similar to the Danish ban. 
in that it and it throws out the baby with the bathwater. So products that even FDA says are not critically important human antibiotics would get thrown out. Um, as well as these others. And the fact is then the companies have to go back and essentially prove their innocence instead of, um, you know, the way the law says that you're innocent until proven guilty. Right. So all of a sudden you have no antibiotics to use on the farm, and the companies may or may not make the effort to go back and, and do these risk assessments because I've written these risk assessments for FDA, and uh-huh. they take a lot of work and therefore right. a lot of money. So that's the problem with that particular bill in my mind is, as, as I was saying before the break, FDA has even said they don't think it's good legislation. Mm-hmm. What you can see FDA is doing with their guidance for risk assessments is they're asking people to do it, address the question very specifically, as they're doing with their guidance 209. They're phasing out the growth-promoting products. They're also trying to increase the amount of veterinary oversight we have on the farm, and I'm totally supportive of that. Right. They're having hearings right now around the country to, to address that question and figure out what oversight means and to figure out how to get it in all the places where, and we, how to pay for where it. we have animals. Yeah. Yeah, because the industry itself has to pay for the vets, right? So if you're a smaller producer and these, you know, these rules change and suddenly you have to have a lot more vet oversight. I mean, I understood that to be one of the issues that came up within the industry. It's like, well, if I only, you know, if I'm just a small guy with 250 or 500 head or 1,000 head, like why do I have to pay as much as everybody else to get the vet oversight, et cetera, et cetera? So how, how, do they, how are you guys going to combat that issue? Well, it's not clear how it's going to be combated. The other part is not just how do the farmer pay the vet, but is there a veterinarian within a day's drive or two days' drive to get to my farm? Yeah. And there are currently places in the country where there are not uh, large animal qualified food animal veterinarians to actually do that job, and that's my biggest concern. I mean, we can say that, oh, we need vets out here in, you know, East Jesus, Nebraska, but... If he can't make a living out there, um, he's not going to be able to stay, you know. Yeah, and that's sure. actually what's happened over the years. If you look at the number of vets scattered around the country, that's been reduced significantly. There's not many country docs anymore. No, there aren't. And so kids, if anybody's listening there whose kid is about to go to college, just think there's a whole fabulous new career waiting for you in large animal veterinarian services. Assuming you can get paid. Assuming you can get paid. And assuming you can get into vet school, which I hear is way harder than uh, medical school by a long chalk. Now, one of the things, um, interestingly enough, Doc, Today, this very day, I received a piece of fan mail, which doesn't come my way very often. And um, strangely enough, it was from a woman who is a vet in Iceland. She was trained in Norway. Her name is Flora Josephine. Um, She had a few questions for me. But um, before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about um, the confined area, you know, living conditions that uh, certainly prevail in many large-scale livestock operations. I'm talking about hens in battery cages, uh, lots of pigs in, you know, in one barn, um, or cows in a confined area feeding operation or a feedlot. Um, don't you kind of have to have, like, you know, antibiotics in the program under those uh, living conditions? I mean, how could you otherwise raise animals that way without using um, sort of disease preventive measures um, like low-dose antibiotic use? So, I mean, I guess that's my point is, like, how do you get away from that low-dose antibiotic use? Well, if, you if can you get away from low-dose antibiotic use if you do like I do and you raise one pig at a time. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, my sister has 25 chickens. She doesn't use antibiotics. Yeah. As you know, soon but... <laughs> as you get a few animals, and regardless whether they're in an outdoor pen or an indoor pen with, with fans and manure pits, there's going to be infectious disease. Mm-hmm. And animals, you see, by nature are herding animals. So they're going to group together. You drive through the countryside, and you'll see cattle all crowded together in Oh, a bunch, sure. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And so I think it's a myth and a, a misconception, misconception that the confinement creates this need. I mean, antibiotics were needed before intensive confinement, and they're still needed now. Um, now, at least, we can put them inside and we can control the environment and reduce those stresses a little bit. Right. So whether or not it's more or less, unfortunately, I don't, haven't seen the data to answer that question, but mm-hmm. it's taking away confinement housing is not going to solve the infectious disease problem. Interesting. Well, uh, to go back to my fan in Norway, or rather in Iceland, Flora Josephine, who is also, she's the district veterinary office, she says, she asked this question, why does the meat industry in the USA have to use low-dose antibiotics when they manage without them in Europe? Now, I don't know enough about the agricultural model in Europe, but I think that's a good question. Why do you think it is that we are, we have been, okay, we'll take away from like the current moment where we're starting to phase things out. But why have we been so dependent on these antibiotics when the Europeans, um, notwithstanding the results you quote about the Danish study, have managed to do so well without? And well, after all, Denmark is one of the biggest pork uh, producers in the world. Denmark is a good pork producer, and so they're a very good example mm-hmm. to look at. When they made the ban on growth-promoting and preventive antibiotics in 2000, that the slaughter bill would essentially implement, there was an immediate 25% increase in the cost of producing those pigs. Mm -hmm. There have been 25,000 farms gone out of business in Denmark since that ban. Currently, they still have the highest cost per pound of pork for any uh, country. Hmm. So we can say they're doing good. I say they're surviving. <laughs> um, so that's the challenge. I mean, they, yeah. they managed to survive because they're very good at raising pigs in Denmark, and particularly and in Norway and, and Sweden and those Scandinavian countries. Right. <clears throat> so that's the big difference. Are I mean, those they, animals they're raised? They're surviving, but if everyone wants to um, pay 25 to 30% more for their um, pork then I suppose we could find a way to do that. Well, see, now there you go. This, to me, is the absolute crux of this whole issue, is will the American consumer and will our trading partners, more importantly, because, I mean, in a lot of ways, um, it's not just what we want to do, it's what our trading partners want to do. Um, will they, will, would they be willing to pay more? Have other countries uh, gone along and paid more for uh, Danish pork because of the low antibiotic uh, um, usage in that country? And, and, and right now, there's a big controversy about the use of rectopamine in pork, um, which has limited our trading partners' interest in our products. And and I think that this that's just kind of like, uh, you know, it's a growth promotant, and it, and it's and it's not an antibiotic. But the point is, is that will we will our farmers will our industries be willing to scale back some of those measures and train consumers to pay more, or do you think that would just be a total disaster? I personally think consumers would pay more. I think. Well, I know I talked to one of the largest retailers in the world, and they said no. The consumers currently will not pay more. Hmm. They've offered it, and the consumers haven't bought it. 
antibiotic-free, that is. But the key question is, if there's a risk, a true public health risk, then the industry, the veterinarians, the farmers will stop it immediately. That's the key thing. Why do we need a 25% increase in cost for something that is not harming? But I think that, see, that's where you and I fundamentally disagree, because ultimately when I see um, stories about, even in that journal that you you had on your blog that talk about these um, multi-drug resistant microbes that have evolved through the use of of cephalosporins, fluoroquinolones, and things like that that we use a great deal of in human medicine, and yes, granted, they're being scaled back now, but still, those things have definitely led to antibiotic-resistant microbes that don't have anything to do or very little to do, given the volume um, as compared to what happens in human medicine. And I know there's a lot of arguments about, well, we, we overprescribe to humans, but we're not overprescribing to, to livestock. And, and I, that's where I really disagree with your industry, with your and side of the story. that's the key question that we're working to, to address. And that's why I've published and others have published scientific peer-reviewed papers that quantify that level of contribution. For Campylobacter and macrolides, how much of the problem is there? Well, it's a risk of 1 in 10 million. For fluoroquinolones and poultry, FDA calculated a risk of 1 in 30,000. Much different level of risk. So what does FDA that mean, says, 1 in 30,000? What, what are you comparing it to? That's the I don't risk quite of understand. adverse outcomes because of the use of the antibiotic on farm. Hmm. So that was the risk assessment that FDA used to say, hey, we need to stop using fluoroquinolone in poultry. Right. You see? So we, again, have to avoid the broad generalizations because these bacteria and these antibiotics, each one is a very unique sort of situation. Right. So that's the big difference. We can't just say antibiotics, oh, and <laughs> stop using them. Right, right. You know, for the animals, they're beneficial for um food safety as well. So that's really my argument. I'm not saying there is no risk. Mm -hmm. I'm saying the risk of most of the uses is negligible. Where there is a risk, let's do something about it. Uh And that's what FDA is doing. So it's really a different approach. And as again, I'm not saying there is no problem. The the problem for most uses seems to be very, very small. Um, So let's don't add extra cost if we don't need to if there isn't a real risk. I see. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, as you said at the beginning, this is a very complex issue, and, and I really appreciate you teasing that part of it out for me because I do, you know, you, you've almost got me going there with the PAMTA thing because I do see what you're saying about making these broad generalizations. That is not going to ultimately help us. Um, I unfortunately have to wrap things up, but I am going to um, invite you back, Dr. Hurd. And I also Dr. want... What? I want to I want you to come back and talk more about this um, because you're very knowledgeable. This has been very helpful, and um, maybe I can have somebody from the opposing side, like from consumers or something, to you know talk with sure. you about this because I I think people really you know I I hate the way the media, um, myself included. Sure, but the, I'm losing you. Uh, Oh, really? I hate the way the media um, sort of overgeneralizes things and makes, uh, you know, sort of very complex issues into sort of black and white. And nothing in life is ever black and white. And um, this is certainly not one of those issues. It's got many, many shades of gray, possibly even 50, but it's nowhere near as sexy. <laughs> anyway, well, I urge... I would disagree on that sense in that there are black and whites. There's a difference between the number of two and the number two million. Yes, 
and that's the key thing. It's just, however, it's complicated because there are multiple different threads of black and white <laughs> yes. that have to be traced out. <laughs> that's right. And that's, I think, you know, the most important thing, I think, for industry um, to do about this issue is to find a way to present the complexity of this issue so that um, there is a broader consumer understanding of what exactly is at stake and what is being used and what isn't being used in the food chain. Well, I very much appreciate your understanding that it is complex and maybe <laughs> helping to convey that because, as you said, the media so easily wants to just put it in clear little packages and... Um, uh, some companies are happy to grab those packages and use them to their marketing advantage and without actually dealing with the hard issues. Mm. I, 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 would, I guess I would agree with that. But on the other hand, I'd also like to see a time when antibiotics use in livestock is phased out to the point where it's really literally just for medically necessary purposes and, and um, <clears throat> you know, and not for any other sort of, you know, disease prevention because they don't feel like keeping their barns clean or whatever. You know what I mean? Because I think there's a lot of that going on, too. I think you make a good point. The FDA actually uses that term almost exactly that that's what they want is medically necessary. Mm -hmm. And that's really what they're pushing toward. They understand that medically necessary does include group uh, treatment and preventive uh, disease, Before which is I like... a harder thing for consumers to understand, yeah. unless you have kids at a daycare, because yeah. you know as soon as one kid gets sick, everybody in the daycare gets sick. <laughs> that is absolutely true. And that, I mean, I'm going to wrap this up because now we're running over time, but this is so interesting. I want you to leave us with some of the other measures because one of the things you mentioned in our blog post is that antibiotics are kind of, you know, for many people, they're expensive. And so uh, sort of the last, you know, the last resort kind of, um, you know, pro process to take on if you find that your animals are getting sick. But what are the other things that uh, sort of progressive companies and progressive industrialized farming settings are using uh, to reduce the use of medications in their in their herds or flocks. What else can be done? Well, the first one is extensive vaccination programs, mm -hmm. and so they test the animals routinely to four different infectious diseases. So, if they're having a problem in the group of pigs that's going into this barn, then they will vaccinate for that disease. Uh -huh. The other thing that they do is they have impeccable nutrition. I know that Huffington Post and your listeners are very interested in nutrition. No one has better nutrition than modern livestock. Mm -hmm. um, I, I visited that. with the nutritionist last week, a lady with 300 PhDs who finally mm -hmm. tunes the diets, and they get six different diets over the course of their lifetime. So nutrition is very important. And then the housing the uh, there's little computers that control the temperature in these buildings, the amount right. of moisture, the curtains go up and down on the side of the buildings, the manure is carefully um, it's removed, you know, goes away underneath, and then mm -hmm. it goes out to uh, to be used as fertilizer. So they they control absolutely everything they can, and antibiotics because they're an extra cost is something they use only when they have to. Right. Well, good to know. This has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, my engineer will send you a link when we post it. Um, it'll probably be in a week or two because this is a pre-record, I have to admit. Um, but we'll, <laughs> we will let you know and you can put it up on your blog and I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Right. Hurd. And we'll be talking again. I'm looking forward Enjoy, to it. Katie. Take care. Bye-bye now.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.